0: Should we do this first? Yeah, yeah we can do that yeah. Get this out of the yeah. way. That's important.
1: Okay. Hey, everybody, this is Ben Young.
0: And Andrew Powell.
1: We're in the kitchen of Dr. Paul Gaudio, a medical and surgical uveitis specialist.
0: This should be deleted. the leading. Yeah. the
1: sound of a French press. Yeah, it's a good sound. Exactly. <laughs> we are here to start our buddy call series, where each week we bring on a different buddy to give tips for the starting ophthalmology resident or medical student on approaching the exam and call. This week, we start with a deep dive into how to do an ophthalmic history, how to approach the red eye, and the full 20-point exam with Clinical Associate Professor at Yale University, Dr. Paul Gaudio. Let's get started. Thanks so much, Dr. Gaudio. Thank you. So, Dr. Gaudio, now that we are all French-pressed, how do you approach the ophthalmic history?
2: At least the essence of my day and what I love most about my job is the five seconds that follow the question, what can I do for you? Patients will anything from say, I don't know, to break down and start crying at that point. Pretty much every time you talk to a patient who comes to an ophthalmology clinic or has any sort of eye complaint, there are four categories in your mind that you want to square away and address with the patient. The first of these will be complaints of vision. Complaints of vision, usually, we would imagine, would be, I can't see. In the simplest scenario, I can't see would be a complaint of vision. Sometimes you will hear, I see things that aren't there. So like floaters, flashes, little spinning lights, various complaints. So whatever the patient does or doesn't see is what you want to ascertain. There are innumerable ways to sort of clarify what they mean, and you can do that on your own but as long as you are addressing complaints of vision that is the first category and there are four categories as we said the other is the appearance of the eye does the patient notice any change in the appearance of the eye now sometimes what can i do for you it leads to the answer my eye is red got it your eye is red and in which case i say can you see every so often it's my baby's eye turns out to the side my child's eye looks funny the eyelid is drooping some complaint of the appearance of the eye is item number two. Item number three is the way the eye feels. So can you see? Does the eye look normal as far as you're concerned? And do you have any discomfort? They don't come to tell you that their eye feels great, but the nature of their discomfort tells you something. My eye itches, or my eye is a foreign body sensation, or my eye sort of generally feels like there's sand in it in a very diffusely gritty sort of way, or I have a deep pain, or the light bothers me. These are all complaints of the way the eye feels. So again, number one, can you see with it? Number two, does the eye appear normal to you? Number three, how does the eye feel? And number four is discharge. Do you have any discharge from the eye? The simplest scenario? No. If they do have discharge, is it more like tears or is it more a pus-like discharge? So time you see a patient make sure you square away those four categories so again you sit down what can I do for you I can't see one or both eyes and then do your eyes appear normal to you yes do they hurt no any discharge no okay so in which case only one of your categories has a positive answer if you have that system for every patient you will have a much more organized approach to grasping the problem and I Give this information because it gets rid of a lot of the noise that can be distracting in evaluating a patient. In other words, what can I do for you can often lead to sort of a life story. And then I turned 11, and then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. If you say, I'd like to keep some directed questions in mind here, and I need to ask you, a uh, one, 2, three, four. can you see redness, uh, appearance, the way the eye feels in discharge, again, you'll have a much more organized sense of the patient's problem. Then we come to specifics in how you address the red eye. Part of this podcast, we'll talk about the 20 point examination, but there are a couple of things we tack on to patients who come to see you for a red eye or red eyes. There's a few things you do. Ideally, you check corneal sensation. I do this with dental floss. So I carry dental floss on me. I have it in the clinic. I take a tiny piece of dental floss, hold it up to the patient's eye. It's fast, it's easy, it's cheap, It seems clean. And I say, can you feel this when it touches the cornea? I warn them, this is dental floss. It's gonna touch your eye. It will feel like a lash when it touches your eye. You're evaluating corneal sensation. It's a lot better than having this Q-tip where you're sort of picking at it with your fingernails and your hands, and now I'm going to touch it to your eye. Patients kind of give a double take when you do that. And no, I don't use a pen, and no, I don't use a piece of wood. I mean, it's... The simplest thing to do is, coming up, you see all kinds of things. Um, the simplest thing to do is just take a, some dental floss, hold that up to the patient's eye. So corneal sensation is number one. Just so you know, as an overview, there are three things you check in a, anybody who has a red eye. One is corneal sensation, one is a preauricular node, and one is lagophthalmos, inability to close the eye. So if I start by checking corneal sensation. So if you are working up a red eye, a patient's red eye yourself, Don't put fluorescein or any anesthetic in the eye before you have checked corneal sensation. Again, if a patient has a red eye, don't put fluorescein or don't anesthetize the cornea before you check corneal sensation. The second thing, make sure the patient can close the eye. You simply say, I'm going to ask you to close your eye. You can sort of tell just by looking at them. You will develop an eye for when they look at you that they don't blink completely. That tells you a lot right there, but you do, I do stop and tell patients to close their eye in a concentrated manner just to make sure that the patient is able to achieve closure if they need to. The last thing you want to miss is a person who has exposure of some degree and you can't figure out why their eye is red. The other thing you check, the third thing you check, is a preauricular node. You're looking for a bump right in front of the tragus that will usually be tender if they have it. The uh, infection of the conjunctiva will often cause a patient to have an enlarged pre-auricular node. So I tell patients, please pull your hair. By the way, if a patient's hair is in the way, ask them to move it themselves. We don't go touching patients' hair as a general rule. It'll make them a little uncomfortable. You say, please remove your hair. Please move your hair. I'm going to touch your ears. They'll say, okay. Okay. You touch the ears and you're looking for a preauricular node. If you have it, it sort of narrows down your differential because now you know you're dealing with a conjunctival, almost certainly a conjunctival infection, usually a viral one. So three add-ons for a patient with a red eye, corneal sensation, lag of thamos, and a preauricular node. The four categories of ocular complaint, complaints of vision, complaints of the appearance of the eye, complaints of the way the the eye feels, and uh, any ocular discharge.
1: That's great. Thanks, Dr. Gaudio, for giving that. You know, I think it's really helpful to think in the systematic manner, especially for most of our residents who are just starting, who are coming off a medicine or some kind of transitional um, preliminary year. The thinking in ophthalmology is different because we're so focused on one organ system that using this system can help you, as Dr. Gaudio say, drown the noise. In a similar vein, Dr. Gaudio, how do you approach your anterior segment exam? In other words, can you share with us your famous 20-point exam? Thank you, Ben. I find
2: that it's very helpful when you sit down to examine a patient. The best way to be confident of your examination is to have a template in your head so that you're examining the same thing every time on every patient, or at least you're accounting for examination elements with every patient. So... In my own mind, I break it down into 20 separate points when I examine the anterior segment that allow me to sort of hit on all the bases, which taken as a whole will allow me to reach pretty much any diagnosis. And once you get good with this, I found it's very difficult. You're not going to, it's very difficult to miss anything as long as you follow this template. But the important thing is to have this template in your head. Number one is always vision. Remember all clinical decisions are predicated upon the patient's vision. If you're new to checking vision, a couple things to keep in mind. We check the right eye first and we document the right eye first. That's just convention, but if you do it in a different different order, people won't understand what you're doing. So check the right eye first. We always want to know the patient's best corrected vision. So if they have their glasses... Put them on and check and hold a hand over the left eye. Ask them what they can see with vision. Now, optimally, we'll check vision with what's called a Snellen chart, the chart with the big E, and then all the smaller letters underneath it. And the vision is the smallest letters that they can read. Um, That is what we call the vision. Each line is kind of numbered. After they've looked uh, with their either glasses or contact lens or with the naked eye, Try to make a pinhole if you can. Some of you may have pinhole devices, or I just take a little needle and put it in a cardboard and ask them to look through it. Vision will get clearer at that point for many people. So we document right eye, vision with correction, whatever correction that they have, and then vision with correction through a pinhole. That should give you some number that you're able to write down. Then you do the same for the left eye. That squares away vision at that point. If you're unable to check vision because your patient, for whatever reason, can't, either because the patient's a baby, the patient's not cooperative, the patient's not conscious, just document, I was not able to check vision. The second point in your 20-point exam is pupils. This is probably not the best setting here to run through how to check for an afferent pupillary defect, but suffice it to say, one thing you do want to know is, do both pupils, if you told really big light, a really big light in front of the patient's face, do both pupils constrict to the same degree? If you know just that much, that's at least a good start. Ben and Andrew will deal with how to check pupils in a more detailed fashion in a subsequent podcast. Yes. Intraocular pressure is number three. You will quickly learn how to check pressures and become wonderful applinators very quickly. We like to check pressures whenever possible. There are some settings. This may be one of the more frequent ones that you're simply not able to to, document, to, to evaluate and simply document. If you didn't check it, just say you didn't check it. The key is, again, have it in your mind as a template, and even if you're not able to do it, at least check it off by saying, uh, we were not able to check pressures. Then we get into a little more nitty-gritty. This is when we start to look through a slit lamp. And and for the, for the purposes here, we're assuming you're not at a bedside. You actually are in a clinic with a patient sitting at a slit lamp. It's important to get a look at the patient's puncta. I never thought I'd go to medical school to come out looking at puncta until I realized what bad puncta can do for you. The puncta is the drain over near your nose, where in the eyelids, from the, the tears that you do manage to produce run through that puncta down into the canaliculi. At, they meet at the upper and the lower puncta canaliculi channels, meet at the nasolacrimal sac, and run down into the nose. Look at the puncta. If it's normal, you'll just see patent puncta. Puncta can be abnormal in a couple of different ways. Some patients will have had a punctal plug placed, and you'll see the plug hanging out of the punctum. Some patients will have had the puncta cauterized, something you don't want to miss. Some patients will have reduplicated puncta, some patients will have congenitally absent puncta. Is it going to absolutely be the key to every exam? No, rarely will it actually come in to, to play in clinical decision making, but it's those, those rare elements which make the difference between a great exam and a, and a good enough exam. Element number five on the 20-point exam is the lids and lashes. Again, most of you didn't sign up for medical school thinking you'd look at lids and lashes until you learned what a malpositioned lash can do for you. You've got a couple of questions. Are the lashes all pointing in the direction they should be pointing? Are there any lashes missing? And is the eyelid position good? A little more sophisticated will be, can you see the gray line? The gray line is where the skin of the outside of the eyelid meets the mucous membrane of the inside of the eyelid. That is called the gray line. The meibomian glands are about 20 to 25 gland openings lined up on the margins of the eyelids, and you document the appearance of those too. A healthy eyelid is well-positioned and not hypervascularized. Again, abnormalities of the lashes or overvascularity of the eyelids or pouting meibomian glands or swollen meibomian glands or chalazia are visible here. Number six is the tarsal congentiva. The tarsal congentiva is the aspect of the congentiva that is behind the eyelids. Remember that the congentiva is a mucous membrane. It covers the front of the eyeball, folds, and comes down to form essentially the lining of the inside of the eyelid. That fold on the top and on the bottom is the reason that your contact lens can't just roll back into your brain because it would get caught at the fold. So we look at the tarsal congentiva on the inside of the eyelids. A healthy congentiva has just the right amount of vascularity with no bumps in it. You will learn to recognize papillae, which are essentially red bumps in your conjunctiva, and follicles, which are these gray domes in your conjunctiva, um, which indicate that there's some sort of immune reaction taking place. When evaluating a red eye, it is very useful to, uh, to document these. As a general rule, you'll learn that if you're not certain that you're looking at follicles, then you're not, and you're just looking at papillae. But a healthy conjunctiva has no bumps at all. The seventh thing you look at is the bulbar congentiva. The bulbar congentiva is essentially a congentiva over the white of the eye. We just document that it is white or clear with, when in a person who's healthy. The main thing that can go wrong here is redness. So you will want to document the redness as either perilimbal. Most of the redness is around the clear, where clear meets white, around the edge of the cornea. Or diffuse, some bulbar redness is sectoral. So like only the top or only one quadrant is red. Number eight is the limbal architecture. The limbus is where the clear of the cornea meets the white of the sclera. Again, where the clear of the cornea meets the white of the sclera. And imagine a wreath of cells that are located at the limbus. These are stem cells. And for the most part, their mission in life is to repopulate the cornea if you get a scratch in your corneal epithelium. So I say repopulate the corneal. I say I mean repopulate the corneal epithelium if you get a scratch. If you don't have a healthy limbus, you will not be able to maintain a healthy population of corneal epithelial cells. When will this happen? In the setting of a lot of contact lens wear and certain injuries like chemical injuries. So it is important to, to get a look at the limbus to know how healthy a limbus, how healthy a stem cell reserve does this patient have. Right along with looking at the uh, limbal architecture, we look at the limbovascularity. Certain inflammatory conditions will cause the limbus to be hypervascularized. There will be a lot of blood vessels or sort of swollen fibrovascular masses overgrowing at the limbus and extending onto the cornea. We look at those here um, and documenting the limbovascularity. If it's normal, you just say the limbovascularity is appropriate or it is hypervascularized. You will notice there should be Not really any blood vessels growing over the limbus and running into the edge zone of the cornea. The outer zone of the cornea, remember, is called the limbal zone. It shouldn't be vascularized more than a trivial amount. If you develop an eye for that, you will learn to recognize very quickly corneas that are abnormal versus those that are normal. Number 10. You are halfway through the exam after you've examined the corneal epithelium. This exam is pretty straightforward because you simply take some fluorescein put it on the eye. Remember those little brown bottles that contain a yellowish liquid? That is fluorescein mixed in with a mild topical anesthetic that allows you to examine the cornea. So if you put a drop of that or simply put a drop of proparacaine anesthetic eye drop and use a, a fluorescein paper strip, you'll be able to get fluorescein on the ocular surface. Fluorescein sticks to any defects in the corneal epithelium. So if you are looking at a healthy epithelium, it'll just be this even sheen of fluorescein. Any defects in the Corneal epithelium will be apparent. Remember, f- fluorescein fluoresces, so it emits light at a different wavelength than it absorbs light. So if you use a cobalt blue filter, you will see fluorescein, which will change from looking yellow to looking green, and any defect will be very obvious in the green. Number 11 is the corneal stroma. The stroma is the cornea that is deep to the epithelium, it should be clear. If you shine a slit beam through it, you should just see gray. If there are abnormalities in the stroma, like scarring, infiltrate, or blood vessels, you will see those by shining the slit beam obliquely through the cornea. The beauty of a slit lamp is that it allows you to examine with three-dimensional vision looking from one direction while your light source comes from another direction. And obviously with a slit lamp, you can vary the size and the thickness of that that's what you use to examine the, the corneal stroma. Number 12 is the corneal endothelium. A lot of keys to prior history can be found on the endothelium because in a healthy endothelium, you will see nothing. You'll just, you won't just you will see the endothelium. If you can see where the endothelium is because there are things sticking to it, like pigment fragments, hyalinized cariatic precipitates, active cariatic precipitates, bumps, gutai, which are these tiny, tiny little dots of various sorts, That tells you that there is an abnormality of the endothelium. You could hold a day-long, a week-long conference on what abnormalities are evident on the endothelium, but if you have it as your number 12 in your exam, that you examine it, that's an excellent start. At that point, we move into the eye. Now we're in the anterior chamber. There's really two things you want to know about the anterior chamber. Is it deep, and is there anything in it that's not supposed to be there? You can get a sense of anterior chamber depth by shining a long vertical slit beam at a 45 degree angle through the temporal limbus, one millimeter from the limbus. So if it's the right eye, go to the outside corner, come one millimeter in with a beam coming from your left, the patient's right, at a 45 degree angle, and you'll shine the beam through the cornea, through the anterior chamber, and the beam will land on the iris. The anterior chamber will just look like a dark space. Compare that to the thickness of the cornea. You should have at least one corneal thickness of anterior chamber darkness in a healthy eye. If you have a narrow anterior chamber, you will notice that the span of darkness is some smaller amount than the cornea. If it is less than half of a corneal thickness, we, gon- we do a gonioscopy. The other thing you want to know, uh, which is number 14, is do you have cells or flare or blood in your anterior chamber. Always look at the bottom of the anterior chamber when you start out to make sure you're not missing a hyphema or not missing a hypopian, but very quickly you'll learn to shine a one millimeter tall beam of light obliquely into the anterior chamber and look for cells and flare floating in that beam. This is the most difficult part of the exam, it is the one which will take you longest to learn to master. I was probably six months into my residency before I actually was able to see things in the anterior chamber, and you should not feel bad if you're if you're stumbling on this step. Uh,
0: quick question, Dr. Gaudio. about that actually. Um, probably better that I learned this before, even in my last couple of days of residency. I'd heard that fluorescein on the eye can actually exacerbate flare. Could that be a false positive?
2: The answer is yes, a little bit. You learn after doing it enough times to sort of filter out fluorescein flare from bona fide flare. You, if you start to look at the cornea after putting fluorescein on everybody, for a while you'll think that everybody has flare. Then you start to realize flare that is attributable to fluorescein on the ocular surface and sort that out from bona fide flare. More difficult is when you're examining a patient who has had a fluorescein angiogram. They actually do have fluorescein floating in the eye, and it's extremely difficult to ascertain flare at that point. You move on to the iris. Again, there's really two things you want to know about the iris. Is the iris stroma intact? And is there any neovascularization of the iris? A few things go into your iris stroma color. One is the amount of melanocytes, one is the health of the underlying pigment epithelium, and one is the sort of overall health of the stroma. I have to say, I don't necessarily make a very much of a mental note of the stroma color, but I do want to look at the stroma and make sure that the stromal texture with the iris crypts over the anterior surface meets the standard that I'm used to looking at. If you get in a habit of looking at these things on multiple patients, an abnormal one will become apparent to you very quickly. If you just, again, the whole point of this 20 point exam is to focus on particular details. If you're not used to looking and registering intently these features as you go along, you just kind of take off, yeah, I see all that and look at everything in a vague sort of way, you'll never really notice anything. So if you look at iris stroma, if you look at each one of these exam elements, you'll notice what is abnormal because you've been paying close attention. The next thing to do is transilluminate the iris. This is also part of exam item number 15 to see if you have any transillumination defects in the iris. You don't want to miss those because a lot of diseases, problems with the iris, beginning with pigment dispersion syndrome and also uh, infectious or inflammatory states of the iris will become apparent only by transillumination. You won't be able to see them elsewhere. In order to transilluminate the iris, you take a one millimeter by one millimeter slit beam, go onto low magnification with your slit lamp, put the beam through the pupil at the center and then lower it so it's just a little bit below the center of the pupil. At that point, if there are transillumination defects, you should be able to see them. It is very difficult on a dilated pupil, or at least it'll be less sensitive on a dilated pupil. On an undilated pupil, the problem obviously is that to get inferior, if you go straight through the center, you might not be able to see everything because there's so much glare. Or if you shine, the, sli- shine the, the slit beam straight into the eye, just a little inferior to center, that's optimal. Acknowledging that that can be difficult on an undilated pupil. The best pupil in which to attempt iris transillumination is just starting to dilate. So you get just inferior to the center, but uh, you won't have a, too small a pupil to transilluminate through. Item number 16 is iris neovascularization. It would seem that if you're doing a good exam, you will always notice iris neovascularization, but it is definitely one of those exam findings where if you are not looking at it, if you are not looking for it, you will not see it. Make a point of putting a slit beam around the pupillary margin, looking for neovascularization of the iris. Again, if you're not looking, you won't see it. Generally, it's very easy to see on a brown eye because you'll see this little ruby red bead somewhere on the uh, on the pupillary margin. You will less often see them only over the peripheral iris stroma and not at the pupillary margin. You do look there, but again, you have to have pretty severe neovascularization or a pretty odd case to have peripheral but not marginal neovascularization. Item number 17, you don't always do. It is gonioscopy. Again, exactly how to do a gonioscopy is something that we will handle elsewhere But with a gonioscopy, it allows you to see the anterior chamber angle, that is where the iris meets the cornea. There are a series of structures you want to see there. Keep in mind, gonioscopy is one of those things which is what we call an examination reflex. Certain findings elsewhere in the exam trigger a gonioscopy, and you want to have it as a reflex. In other words, you just can't resist gonioing if a couple of things are true. One is if the pressure is, let's say, over 21. If you measure a high pressure, it should take a team of horses to stop you from performing a gonioscopy. You want to look at the angle. So you don't always look at it in an eye where everything is normal, but if you have a high pressure, you look at it. If your anterior chamber is narrow, again, hell or high water, you gonio. If you see anterior chamber cell, anterior chamber flare... Again, eugonio. You often will want gonio if you have a corneal foreign body and you need to see if it is penetrating into the anterior chamber because gonioscopy also shows you the corneal endothelium. So sometimes you're not sure if a foreign body is through the endothelium, gonioscopy will allow you to see it very clearly. Oh, and obviously any abnormality of the iris, iris neovascularization, some iris mass, Hell or high water, eugonio. Let that be a reflex. It is one of those things which will separate the great doctors from the other doctors. After you have performed a gonioscopy, if you need one, you move on to the lens. Basically, when you're a third-year resident looking for cataract cases, every lens will have nuclear sclerosis that is unmanageable and visually significant. But you really want to get a sense of... (laughs) You really want to get a sense of, is there nuclear sclerosis? What does, the, what does the nucleus look like? How much nuclear sclerosis or cortical opacity is there? Then, number 19, is to transilluminate the lens looking for posterior subcapsular cataract. That is another one of those findings where if you don't do that, exactly that maneuver, you won't know it. It's like transilluminating the iris. There's no other way to diagnose it, really. So posterior subcapsular cataract is often the difference between, Doc, I see just fine, and they're 20-20, and Doc, something's not quite right, and they're 20-20 minus one. And you look, and then you see they have a little bit of PSC. The last item on the 20-point exam is, of course, vitreous cells. If you're not looking for these, you will not see them. You pretty much need a dilated pupil. You can look for vitreous cells two ways. You could do it the same way that you look for anterior chamber cells, which is by an oblique one millimeter to two millimeter slit beam shined into the vitreous. A healthy vitreous has no cells. The, more, the easier way to do it is if you have a dilated eye, transilluminate the vitreous. So shine a bright slit beam into the vitreous inferiorly. So don't shine through the center, shine a little bit inferiorly. Push the focal point of your slit lamp past the lens and you will see these sort of orange stars in an orange sky or yellow stars in an orange sky light up. If you see those, a healthy, a healthy eye will have none. If you see those, that is the acid test for vitreous cells. And again, vitreous cells are often overlooked. So that is the 20-point exam. And if you keep the template in your head, memorize it 1 through 20, I can guarantee if you use it over and over and over again, you will never miss what you're trying to find
1: you know, if you're a first year resident going into call, you can listen to that every drive in and just like get that. Then hopefully every, uh, (laughs) by your 20th call, you're number 20 items.
0: Thank you very much again, Dr. Gaudio. And as a imminently graduating senior resident, I want to also thank you for the last three years of excellent, wonderful, enjoyable teaching that we've received from you. As you can tell audience, Dr. Gaudio can give this particular lecture and most in his sleep. So I feel like a we're copping out a little bit here by having you come and do some of our work for us in this podcast, <laughs> but very much appreciated. In a little bit, we're going to transition to talking, just sort of ask, chatting with you a bit about your career. Dr. Gaudio has had a very interesting and unique career, and a lot of our audience are medical students and residents, and even beginning, are graduating residents like myself, about to start the rest of their ophthalmology careers. So, uh, look for that in an upcoming episode but we'll transition to doing that real quick but for right now thank you all for listening
1: if you'd like to support this podcast writing or review on iTunes is really helpful also if you're a longtime listener and you felt like this would be useful and you have fresh first year residents who are starting at your program or that you know of if you can share this with them um, you know that's also helpful for us to kind of get the word out about this new buddy call series keep your eyes peeled for new buddy call episodes each week Next week, we're going to talk about pediatrics on call with the Shagan Bhatia, a graduate also of Yale University residency program who just completed her pediatric fellowship at Shiley Eye Institute. We hope you guys tune in next week to learn about how to take on challenging pediatric cases on call. Until then, have a good week. Take care. Bye-bye.